0: All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We are in this book discussing living in light of being identified with the risen Christ. That's what we've been talking about. And really, verses 10 and 11, which we're going to cover today, are an extension of that theme. And Paul provides a greater description, definition, as to what this means about our new life in Christ. And it really... Presents this idea, and I'll, I'll throw it out in form of a question: Can people really be transformed? I mean, are we just dressing people up, or is there true transformation that can take place with a relationship with Christ? Can God transform a criminal, turn him into a follower of Christ? Absolutely, I've seen it happen. I've had letters from. Prisoners of one in our fellowship who came to Christ and they said, What happened to this guy? Complete transformation. Uh, They wanted to know what happened. It is possible. Now you may not have a criminal past. You may never have been in jail. But we're all guilty. We stand before God as having all sinned and deserving of judgment. And what God has done in the Christian life is not just put some clothes on top of that, but he's actually given us a new life. There has been a great exchange. This is more than just a makeover. Let's take a look at our passage and stand as we take a look at this. I'm going to ask that we all read this together and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we might be able to apprehend what is being said here. But more than that, Live in light of it. Transform our own hearts and our perspectives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our life in Christ is a deliberate cooperation with our new life and not a makeover of the old. Verse 10 says, put on the new self. The task for believers is to stop living in light of the old self and to develop actions according to a new identity, a new self. Sounds kind of ethereal. It's like, what? what is he saying? Check out Ephesians 4. It says this to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life so here it brings some definition former manner of life former way of looking at things former perspective and it's and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness Now, this may come as a shock to some people because I think we we have these assumptions about what the Bible is saying in such passages. But it's interesting that the old self and new self are never described as coexisting in anyone. There's an old self that has died, and then there's the new self of a person being alive in Christ. One replaces the other. In fact, I'd say the old self is never the proper way to describe a believer a believer is a totally new person. When you and I became Christians, something died. Romans 6 talks about this. Check it out. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And I'm going to jump to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Something's died. What was that? What we call the old self. Our old self was our identity before. We were identified by sin, by, by deceitful desires, is what the pastor says. And so as a Christian, we do not have two selves. And, and to use common nomenclature, although the Bible does not use this terminology, neither do we have two natures. You have one identity as a a believer in Jesus Christ. Our true identity is a new creation in Christ. Now, in a practical sense, my identity is not my bank account. My identity is not my job. And I think we all know the problems when we associate our identity, define ourselves by those things, right? Because then, if those things are, are threatened in any form or fashion, it's like, whoa, man, you know, we go nuts. My identity is not my outward looks. Who I really am is, is, is much deeper than that. And by the way, my identity is not my sexual preference. All right? Now, these are elements of our existence, but they are not preeminent. God is not reinvigorating an old life. We have a new one. Now listen, we still have the flesh, this body I live in, the brain. I remember the old life. I can't forget some of those thoughts. And there are there are patterns of, of thinking that need to change. But I have a new identity. Despite the fact that I have a flesh, I also live in a world system that has a way of thinking, a way of going about things. I, I, oh, we have a devil who seeks to deceive. All of these things tempt the Christian and they work in unison to, to accuse, to, to lie to us, to deceive. This is why daily we have to rely upon the word of God that speaks truth and reality. And, you know, the deception is we think all that's in the world is the material parts. And if we're unaware of a whole other reality that God tells us about, well, we're simply being deceived. And so in order for me to be transformed, then I need this the, the truth of God's word. And so by putting on the new self, what that means is, I reject those fleshly impulses, and that's different than an old nature, old self, because that's died. I reject the world system and its philosophy that says, you know, your identity is found in these things. And, you know, you got to work 80 hours a week if you want to be something, and all the other lies. Or, you're, you know, you're not as attractive as the other person, so you're really a nobody, or you don't have enough money. All those things, all those lies— no, oh, that I have, I have value outside of those things, that, that God sees me as being made in his image, and that is truth. That's what we have to remind ourselves. And then besides that, we have Satan, who the Bible says is the accuser of the brethren. So all those things, again, work in concert, and I reject them. Those are no longer calling the shots. Those are no longer dictating how I think about myself, about the world, or about others, right? I now live under new ownership. Now, we still sin. None of us are sinless. First chapter of 1 John tells us that. Uh, You're a liar if you think you never sin. We all still sin. But that is not attributed to the old identity or old self. Sin happens because I have not submitted to the indwelling Christ, my new self. Now, what this meant for the Colossians, to put it in a practical sense, is that they were hearing from these pre-Gnostic, Gnosticism means, you know, to know, uh, and they they had to know this certain knowledge they said about God's secret knowledge or secret revelations, and then I'm on the end track with God. And so people were getting all wigged out that they didn't have this knowledge, and, you know, it kind of creates a them and us mentality, I really want to be in, I don't want to be out, this exclusive club to be a part of. And they were all into reforming the current state, denying the material world, kind of a, a, a Platonic view of, of duality of, of invisible world and, and material world. The material world was basically meaningless. And so all of these things were being propagated within the uh, Colossae. And Paul is saying, listen, that's not where life is found. Life is not about just having this, you know super experience or knowledge or revelation. But actually what's taken place is a great exchange. Our life in Christ goes much deeper than window dressing. It's more than just, you know, and a lot of Christians think it's, you know, just purely the way I act and I just dress it up like some new, it's just a new ethic. And while there is an ethic that's different from the world system, the Christian life is much more than that. It's not about, you know, getting rid of a few bad habits and now just being nicer to people. I could join the Kiwanis and do that. All right? But with, with Christ, there's a transformation that takes place. An exchange. Romans thirteen fourteen says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to gratify its desires. How in the world is that done? Well, I think there are some clues here as we unwrap this passage. The first is we understand that our life in Christ is progressive. This is an important concept, especially if we fall. We think, oh, it's done. God's done with me. No, you know what? Our life in Christ is a trajectory of our life pointing to Christ. And we're going to fall. But. It's one of the ways that we can learn. We humble ourselves, we admit our sin, we move on. It's a progression. He says in verse 10, our self is being renewed. And the Greek construction there refers to a progression. Now, there are aspects to uh, particularly when our relationship started with God, to when we were initially experiencing this regeneration, there are aspects to our life in God that happened at one time. It was a one-time event, and it's not talking about a progression. For instance, the Bible uses a big word. If you don't know what it means, don't worry about it, but it, it, it's justification. And, and just in layman terms, what it means is basically I've been made right with God. That was one act that God does where he applies the righteousness of Christ to the Christian. We read, for instance, in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. Listen, the chasm that sin creates in all of our lives is kind of like being at the edge of the Mississippi River. And God's on the other side. Nobody can jump that. It doesn't matter how good you are. We cannot cannot bridge that gap in and of ourselves. God is going to have to do something. It's an impossible task to right ourselves before God. No amount of religious activity is going to do it. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. And so what God has done, he has given the righteousness of Christ an amazing act of justification and applied it to the Christian, to the person who now says, you know what, I can't do this on my own. I'm going to place my trust in Christ. That is what we mean by being justified. But listen, as human beings, we just, we, the fleshly part, the worldly part, Satan, we all, you know, have thought at one time or another, or still do, it's all about my performance. You know, I got to ramp up the performance so that God will be pleased and love me once again. I remember when I was in Bolivia. About 15 years ago, I visited a church that had this effigy of, of Jesus and Mary in a glass box that, was, that you were to kiss, basically. And, and outside stood a, a canopy of hundreds of, of, of candles that you were to light and you were to kneel before. Listen, you cannot kneel enough times. You cannot confess enough. You cannot burn enough candles You cannot kiss Mary and Jesus enough times. If you kiss them a thousand times, what do you get? You get tired lips. But you get nothing in terms of being made right with God. Because every person has a sentence of death that God declares is on them because of sin. And that sentence is going to be carried out with every person. The only question is, am I going to pay that price myself or am I going to allow Christ to pay that for me? Every religion says, do, do, do. And Christ says, I have already done it. It is finished. Will you accept that gift? That's the message of the gospel. So this justification takes place at salvation, at when I first realize of my need of Christ and I trust him. That's what the Bible means by that. But listen, once you have that, you don't say, you know what? I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm now on autopilot. I can live any way I want. Whee, I'm on my way. No. All right? Everybody lives that way, right? Whee, I'm on my way. We are responsible... To grow in Christ. We are responsible to depend upon him daily. Here's what we read in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, here again, process is being renewed day by day. Or Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. Check it out. All right? Certain things you got to say no to. Certain things, dangers you have to recognize. Don't think a certain way. All right? Don't be conformed to the world's way, but be transformed by a new way of thinking, listen, that matches reality. The world does not face reality because the world refuses to recognize the spiritual entity of God and His presence. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what God wants us to do, what is good and acceptable. And again, in Ephesians 4.23, that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, all a process of spiritual growth. Even though we have this new creation in Christ, this new self, this new identity in Christ, we have to appropriate what has been given to us in light of all the resources that we have of being in Christ and Christ in us. Now listen, for the Colossians who are hearing this, You know, they had no need of Christ, uh, not all the Christians, but these false teachers, the the pre-gnostic teachers, false teachers. They were talking about a Christless religion in in human tradition, asceticism, which which basically meant to deny. You still have this today. I'm going to deny all the conveniences of the world. I'm going to deny dressing like the world. And so what you end up doing is just looking weird, all right? But that's not spirituality, all right? And, and, and then they were saying, that gets us in contact with the spiritual beings, you know, because they would try to talk to angels. And this is all powerless to renew people. Powerless in terms of transformation. And we still have that today, right? The Christian life is not chiefly a new moral system, a new ethic. The Christian life is chiefly about a new life in Christ living in light of that being renewed in him daily. Here's another insight we get from this passage. It says being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We seek one object or person in our new life. What are we being renewed to image of the creator? And it says knowledge renewed in knowledge. What does that mean? Well, if, uh, If I said, you know, I really know my wife and Janet really knows me, what I'm speaking about is much more than just, you know, we know trivial details about each other. She knows when I graduated from high school. I know that's not really what we would mean by that. I think we would understand that there is a depth of relationship that we really know each other. It implies intimacy and closeness and i think that's really the idea that paul is trying to communicate with this kind of knowledge the renewal of this knowledge is the idea that i'm growing in closer relationship with christ there is a deep fellowship with god hebrews 12:2 says that we are to look to jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith, another way to say that, he's the one who causes the growth. There is no growth outside of Christ. People talk today about you know, spiritual. Well, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, you may think you're a spirit, but it may not be the spirit of God without Christ. Because the only way to grow the Spirit with God is through Jesus Christ. Knowledge of Christ in relationship to Christ. There is no spiritual growth. Outside of Christ and his word. And so we're to look to Christ as the author and fit. Why is that? Because he's not just our, our example, but by sitting at the right hand of God, he's not only our basis of growth. He is in a position of authority at the right hand of God, and he is infinitely resourced with divine power. And that Christ lives within the Christian. I would be foolish not to live in dependence upon him in my Christian life. So what Paul is really doing is turning around this notion of special knowledge. He's turning it around on these Gnostics. And he's saying, you know, you think you got this inside track with God? Think you got these special revelations, all right? Puts you, you know, in close fellowship with God. But listen, it's all about Christ and that relationship with him just not much different today. Even within the Christian tent, you have people who, you know, operate within their certain denominations in certain ways. You know, we got the inside track. We don't. And there's this, there's this legalism. There's this, you know, uh, affiliation that you have to have. You know, it's us versus them. It's no wonder the world looks at the church and said, you guys are nuts. Because I have no interest in what you're doing and the way you talk about other people and the way you treat other people. If that's Christ, I want to have nothing to do with Christ. And the church has to say guilty in some measure of that kind of attitude that some people have. But having said that, there's also a large segment of people who get it and understand. Christ is our creator. He is the goal and the means and the energy for the Christian life. It is not about our political affiliation. It is not about our denomination. It's not about a special experience that that separates us from everybody else. Our experiences, our knowledge are to be filtered through Christ. Does it help me? grow in my relationship with Christ? Does it help me submit to Christ's authority? Second Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And, and other translations talk about the a simplicity of knowing Christ. And what it is, it's, it's with a singularity that I understand what the Christian life is about. In Christ we get it all mixed up well if I got to go to that church I got to dress a certain way you know I can't drink I can't get a movie and you, mix, you put all that crap in there and people think that's what the Christian life is about and it's not you can you can have convictions you can walk with Christ and have convictions that's fine but you cannot start relegating that everybody has to be this cookie cutter looking Christian and do it exactly the way you see it or else you're not close with God That is the stuff of the flesh. That's the stuff of the old life and not of Christ. Now, all this may sound a tad innocuous. All this is, you know, yeah, rah, rah for Jesus. Until Paul starts taking names and saying the things that we need to avoid in verse 11. And this is what he's saying. If Christ is really your life, then let me tell you what can't happen. With you. You got a lot of Christians walking around thinking, you know, me and Christ, man, we're like this, and you couldn't be farther apart in fellowship because you are walking like you were in the old life. You're walking by the flesh. You've been deceived. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and in all. As a body of Christ, we have to learn to live in unity regardless of the artificial distinctions imposed by an earthly perspective. And these distinctions typified an old self way of thinking. Now listen, I get it that whenever we're talking about philosophy, whenever we're talking about religion, uh, these concepts, we have to realize we're really talking about people. And people often adopt, including everybody sitting here in this room, including myself, we adopt notions for a host of personal reasons, not necessarily always associated with truth or reality. Right? I mean, that's the fact of it, as human beings. And what Paul does, he comes along and he absolutely shatters these false distinctions and concepts. So, hold on to your horses. Here we go. First of all, Christ supersedes national or ethnic pride. He says, Christ, in Christ, there's not Greek or Jew. Now, the Greek emphasized the Greek culture, kind of high social standing. The Jew boasted, they had the inside track, divine religion. And both prerogatives, listen, they take a back seat to unity in Christ. This is not to say that national or ethnic pride is bad, that people need to deny that. It's simply to say, that you can enjoy deep fellowship in Christ regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, that Christ trumps all of that. Now, the Jew, frankly, didn't like the non-Jew. And Jews and Greeks had a lot of reasons to dislike one another. But in Christ, these distinctions evaporate because we are united in him. Just look around us. Our society is struggling, whether it's Ferguson or any other community, struggling with what is it that unites us. Now, you know, we can try to come with a billy club and and make sure that everybody lives, you know, within the law. That's not unity. The fact is, is that we look to all these things to try to bring unity. Oh, if we are only all of the same politics. Politically, we are divided. If we only could educate people. Listen, for all the things that education can do, and I'm an educator, so I'm a proponent of education, but it is not equipped to answer life's bigger questions. And science is in the same boat. We talked last week about the study at Edinburgh University. A third of scientists fudge their findings. That was a study from Edinburgh, 2009. That's not to say you throw education out, you throw science out. Of course not. But the point is, you're dealing with people. These fields have great value, but they simply are unable to deal with the need of the human heart. They cannot answer the biggest problem, and that is sin that causes the division. I mean, we seem to be so fractured. There is racial tension, it seems, everywhere. But listen, there has been one sent from heaven who can heal the heart and unite us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We're seeing this happen right here in Springfield. We're seeing this happen with our unity efforts. And I'm not claiming this is the only effort. I know that there are other people who have the same heart and doing their thing. But our unity efforts within Springfield, where we're seeing churches of color come together, and it's yielding tremendous results. New relationships being formed. Not because of human ingenuity, but just because we are desperate enough to realize and desperate enough to say, you know what? It's only going to happen because of Christ. Not because, you know, we're all of the same political affiliation. Not because we agree on every jot and tittle of theology. No, because we realize that only in Christ is there hope for this to happen. And by the way, we expect over a thousand people this year. Black and white coming together at our event at the end of the month. Next, Christ supersedes religious affiliation. He says, circumcised and uncircumcised. In Colossae, the Judaizers boast of circumcision. Of course, being circumcised was the mark that I was a Jew, all right? Qualifying mark of being a Jew. And what Paul is saying where the new man is such a need for religious recognition evaporates there's no need for cutting off the flesh all right for a ceremony for a ritual a ritual to be made right with God so Jew and Greek are drawn together circumcised uncircumcised now listen to the Jew they viewed anybody outside of their uh, of their deal they were unclean and for a Christian, Any man or woman, regardless of their background, regardless of their affiliation, if they are in Christ, we can enjoy unity. That's not the experience, though, is it? Why? Oh, wait a minute. You're not a Republican? Oh, Oh, wait a minute. Uh, You're not a Baptist? Uh, You're not Reformed? Sorry. Sorry oh, you're not charismatic, you're not Pentecostal. Oh, you don't speak in tongues? No, I'm really sorry. You just don't get it, do you? All that stuff, all that pettiness is what people look at. And it's, you know what it is? You have, what you basically have done is said no to God. Think about that. You said no to God. You actually have said no to a very prayer of Jesus Christ who said that they will know that, I have, that, that God has sent the Son, Jesus, by the love that we have for one another. So when you refuse to love based on those things, you've just basically put your middle finger up to Jesus. Good luck with that, all right? All right. Christ supersedes religious affiliation. Next, Christ supersedes cultural distinctions. Barbarian, Scythian. Anyone foreign to Greek culture was termed a barbarian. And basically how they used that was if you couldn't speak the language, you were a barbarian. And Scythian was the worst kind. It was the uncultured who was basically, they they saw them as a savage. The point is, is that in Christ, cultured and uncultured can come together. But now what we have in Many churches is, uh white trash. Yeah. Oh, a rural person, not urban like us, not metropolitan, okay? We have all these little ways of viewing people diminishing their value. And in Christ, those things are destroyed. Now, it's not that uh, God is saying, well, everybody has to be at the same level of a culture. No, what he's saying is that, Listen, you could have the, the, the high-browed scholar and the labor come together and still enjoy deep fellowship, that those things do not get in the way. Next, Christ supersedes economic or social distinctions, slave-free. The church enjoyed unity with slave and free. Remember Onesimus and Philemon talked about in the book of Philemon? A slave owner and slave enjoying Deep fellowship. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to be. Slaves have little or no rights, no dignity in that culture. And so the free person was recognized as socially privileged. The majority in here are white. The majority in here have money. All right? By the way, you make over 30000 you make more than 95% of the world, so you have money. Okay? That's the way it is. And let me tell you something about having privilege. It's very difficult for us to go outside of that and recognize those who don't. That's just human nature. That's the way human nature works, right? Well, in fact, when you have privilege, you resent it when somebody points a finger out, This is not white guilt. I'm not saying we need to feel guilty. All I'm saying is we need to open up our eyes and recognize we have brothers and sisters outside of the privilege, right? Don't hear a whole lot of amens at that, all right? Instead, what we do, listen, I'm just talking truth here. What we typically do is get a job. Those people are at fault. We use these blanket statements and basically condemn every one of them. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't personally responsible. Yes, they are. It doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who take advantage. I get all of that. But when you lose your compassion... When you make blanket statements to cut everybody, that's the old stuff. That's not the new man in Christ. That's the old stuff. If you don't understand this, just listen to how somebody talks about illegal aliens or refugees. Okay, let's just, uh, can we just talk truth here? I get the whole political aspects of it. I'm not saying you can't have a position on dealing with it in mass. But do do you get that we're still talking about people made in the image of God? Do you get that you, we're still talking about people who have value? What's more important to you? Those people come to Christ in their love or they just get out of town? Answer that question, then talk to me about your Christianity. Talk to me about your love. Because in Christ, it supersedes economic or social distinctions. Every social grouping has its issues. Again, I get the political ramifications of certain positions. I'm not saying I I applaud any, well, not any, but I applaud good participation within the political system, all right? But politics do not supersede Christ. Our ultimate allegiance and responsibility is not to a political party, but I applaud participation. But we do it as a a steward of what God has given us. Living out the gospel, the beauty of how Christ supersedes all of these distinctions. And I get that it's hard to do. I get it. God stretches us. Lastly, please no applause when I say lastly. Christ is our ultimate goal and allegiance. Christ is all and in all. Normal human distinctions are overruled in union with Christ. In Ephesians 1.23, the church is called the fullness of him who fills all in all. And, of course, this is Christ. It relates to his, the totality of his presence. And here in Colossians, it speaks of Christ being the total concern, preoccupation, and context of the Christian. Everything I do and say is to be filtered through Christ. Christianity can make even the most uncivilized unite together. Different cultures uniting together. I mean, look around the world. And we see all the attempts through all different fields of study of trying to unite. And in fact, the king of all, the university, you know what it means? Unity and diversity. Well, how are we unified? Because if you are not politically correct, good luck with that. Christ has dispossessed and obliterated all distinctions. He supersedes all of it. There's not some intellectual preeminence, religious prerogative that supersedes him, a social caste. He substitutes all of these in the church. And Christ is to occupy all of life and permeate all of it. And within that body, okay, there's no inferiority or class. Men and women of completely different origins are gathered together in unity, sharing a common allegiance to their Lord. All of this, you know, it can come off like just theology. But can it really happen? Can there really be unity when you have so many differences? I think it can. And I want to have a friend come up here and talk to me about this. All right? Christine, come on up here. This is my friend, Christine Peoples. She's a dear friend of Janet and I's that we've known for how long now? A little over a year. Have a seat. Good to have you. you. Well, first of all, let's uh, talk about where you're from and uh, maybe how you came to Christ. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I'm from Kansas. And um, how I came to Christ, I was 10 years old. Um, My family has always been in church. My mom and dad are ministers. And um, I was 10 years old, and I came to an altar. And I gave my heart to the Lord. And our church believed in praying you through Uh, Good old-fashioned, you know, uh, prayer always helps for someone to be there to just coax you on. And that's how I got saved at the age of 10. And I never looked back.
0: Now, I'm assuming that uh, you have experienced some of the uglier side of things that we talked about here today, um, or maybe at different degrees. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. um, There was some degrees but nothing like um you've heard of um just the little things. You know how the Bible said it's the little foxes, you know, that spoil the vine. Um I've always um just held myself to a certain uh, degree of maturity because of my upbringing. And my mom, we always talked about our history, and she just built up my faith in Christ and who I was in Christ, and that was first priority. But I noticed, you know, going to certain places, and I was there first, and there were other people coming in, and so they were served before me or getting a meal that was half the size of another person's meal, which was really helping me. (laughs) and so you know as i thought about those things you know because i was born again and i always had support around me always and as i thought about those things i thought god turned out everything for my good because i loved him and that's the clause and i was sharing that with you those that love the lord he turns everything into good so whatever's put out there and so my main thing, though, that I started noticing is I started noticing, like within my family, like my great-grandparents, there's certain things they wouldn't talk about because they were scarred by things that happened to them. And they actually did give it to the Lord, and they wanted to leave it there. Because I noticed something coming over their face, their spirit. It wasn't comfortable. And so I learned how to respect my elders and those that have been through things that I could never, you know, Never understand, and the the second thing that I realized, and that was in my society today that children, how they were perceiving themselves, how they saw themselves because of what goes on and from generation to generation, and that really broke my heart, and that started my journey on celebrating people, and when I started celebrating people. It was all about that drive of getting people involved in, from community, all the unity things that had happened in uh, community in my past. But first I knew that self had to reflect what I wanted to see. I had to first check me and make sure that my relationship was Christ with Christ was all in all because that was the only way I was going to be able to show and express the love that was going to break the bondage. And doing that, that's people were just coming out of the woodwork. You know, God would send people and then build relationships like ours. I mean, when I met the shorts, I just fell head over heels in love with them. I mean, I can't explain. That's a a small
0: crowd, by the way.
1: (laughs) It's a God thing. You know, when you meet someone and you just connect. And that's how it's supposed to be for the body of Christ. We're supposed to connect in spirit. I never saw, you know, color. I never saw any of that. I saw this tremendous love that kept reaching out to me. And I would go on in my life, you know, and I'm thinking, man, I need some more shorts in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I would long to be there. And I knew that was only God. Mm. Only God. So.
0: I love. Some of the things you're saying here really is about taking personal responsibility, I think, for our own attitudes and perspective. And that's really what I hear you saying, and I, I applaud you for that. And I love, too, that you're – and I think one of the points I was trying to make is that we're not in denial of our ethnicity. And you have done a great job. You talked about educating the youth, like celebrating the Freedom Summer. And Janet and I saw that. We were blown away when you put that together. was at the, uh, the, the library. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um at the library i have the privilege of having a yearly event and it's called meet and greet celebration and i bring uh history to life through um different situations in our past and this happened to me freedom summer which if you all know that um that was when voter registration um was illegal in the south and um There are a group of college kids that came together actually under the leadership of clergy. They had sent out – actually, like, you know, you go in your college and you see forms stapled on the wall if you want to be a part of this, and they'd send out uh, to different classes and groups that were already working to uh, bring uh, voter registration down into those parts of the South. And so what happened was assemblies sort of like this, you know, how it started out – these people were coming – And what happened was they were told, hey, you might die. You might, you know, not make it because people are really serious about this. But what was impressive about the whole situation, it was young people. And they were willing to die. They did not look back because Mm. it's like, hey, we have democracy. So we want to make sure these people have it. It's their inheritance right. Mm. And so what happened there is it changed the tide of things because the relationship that these young people – were able to form with the folks in the South because they had to live with them. There was like a strategic plan all across the board where when these kids would come in, they lived with these families. These families had to tell them how to survive. They had to take baths like they took baths, eat the food that they ate. Because of economic depression, you know, they got this firsthand, and they understood that it was about the system. It was not about the people themselves. So in that transparency, I wanted to bring that to life and show the unity that happened within the midst of that storm. Though I walk through the chalet, the, the valley of death, I will feel no evil. You know, there are situations that happen like this that you have to be on a higher level, and I know that clergy was a big part of that. So I tried to bring the churches out and the families and the communities just by this one event. And so we're evolving. That was our third year. This is coming up to be our third year, but it had to have. I had to have something that was a third space that people could come together and talk and conversate. So that's what that's all about.
0: It was inspiring. It's really cool, and I think think what people miss in all those historical moments is the function of a worldview, the function of the church in providing the impetus. Uh, If you've never read, for instance, the letters from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King, he was trying to influence Mm -hmm. other ministers and replete with scriptures on why they needed to get behind this transformative event in society. Um, But you take that out, I don't think there's hope. I I think all you're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But there's no way to save the ship unless we can truly get back to valuing individuals being made in the image of God. That implies there is a God. Outside of that, I don't see any worldview that can support the unity. And so... I just love what you're doing. I love the fellowship that we've been able to enjoy um, because of just that one concept.
1: I have just one more thing to add, Pastor Short. You are talking about Martin Luther King in the Birmingham Jail. Because of his love, and you all know the story, how he was nonviolent. He was behind that jail, and he was trying to get people, persuade them to come aboard. But the children caught the message, mm. and they organized themselves it was like d-day coming can you imagine from every schoolhouse kids were coming and they were coming and they had actually released them like released a hundred and then another hundred it was strategically planned but they felt that love for martin luther king and they took up they took up their cross to go do that and my point in saying that is if children can resolve in their heart, and it, did, and it wasn't just one color of, of a child. You know, history never, you have to really dig for that. But history, it showed all of us. Because families look like you and I and with a couple of more. But the thing about it is, is that the Bible tells us, unless we come as a little child, And you've got to have that courage because children, you can tell them anything and they know it's gospel because mama said it, daddy said it. But if we don't take up our cross as being self-sufficient, knowing that God, I can't do this by myself. And let's face it, everybody doesn't like everybody. You know, you're going to have, you know, some trials. I, I do. But you know what? Inside my head, praise God for the Holy Spirit, that there's always something in, inside my head that goes off. and like, you know what? You need to smile more. You know, these are souls out here. Wherever you go, you are touching lives, whether you realize it or not. Your body language, how you respond, just like Pastor Short was sharing. But the thing of it is, is that you know that Christ trunks everything. Just think of that card in yeah, I'm, I'm putting it down. Boom.
0: I'm putting boom.
1: And you know what? The heavier the problem gets, you know who your daddy is, right? You are not a bastard child. Okay. So you are going to just boom. And the thing about it is, is that it does renew your spirit. You start growing and God starts showing you different levels and you don't even notice stuff going on. And the thing about it is, is that we have got to be that light. When we become connected to the light source, there's no stopping us. We're the church. God's going to send to you daily, and you have to you have to be responsible with your light. You can't just, you know, show it around and, and be boastful, but you've got to be a manager of that light. God is good all the time, isn't he? Amen. Amen.
0: You just went to preaching, girl. <laughs> <laughs> all right god bless you sure love you appreciate it hey let's let's pray for steve the leaders of uh, the unity project right now okay father i just thank you for what you're doing uh here in springfield i uh, pray for steve williams and the other leaders um christine as they help to put together this event at the end of september will you continue to uh, flesh out this unity and deepen the relationships? We thank you for your church. Continue to do its good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God God bless you. Love you. Appreciate it. All right.